0: We're back to walk through Module 6 of the Life After Pornography program and really highlight the role of emotions in compulsive sexual behaviors. And also touch on it a bit about how sexual education can really help set the stage for better experiences with our sexuality. And with that education, it might prevent struggling with compulsive sexual behaviors like pornography. So I hope you enjoy this walkthrough of Module 6 of the Life After Pornography program. If you're like me, you know your mind can be your best or your worst friend. Our mind is an amazing tool that can do incredible things, but our mind can also create problems out of nowhere. Sometimes our mind keeps recommending the same solutions to problems even when they aren't working. I see this pattern play out as individuals try to overcome their anxiety, depression, or even struggles with pornography, using approaches that make sense but aren't very helpful. This podcast will show you how real researchers and clinicians are changing the way we approach mental health and reveal helpful research-supported principles designed to help real people with real problems. My name is Dr. Cameron Staley, and welcome to the Life After series radio. So We're back again to walk through module six of the Life After Pornography program. And module six is all about the role of emotions. So, this is probably one of the most important principles. And often, as people say, you know, if I was to focus on any one thing to start overcoming my struggle with porn, I think you get the most mileage with starting to attend to your emotions. And so, even though it's probably the most important thing and the thing that's going to take you the farthest, often when I tell that to people, they're like, nah, what else you got? Like, what are their strategies? What are their tricks? But it's like, yeah, really, if you want to start making progress quicker with your struggle, it really comes down to becoming more aware of your emotions, getting more comfortable with discomfort, and creating more space for those, which is often the last thing someone wants to do who's been struggling with a compulsive behavior for a long time. Because typically, the compulsive behaviors to help you get away from these emotions and if that's the case, really the antidote is to get more comfortable with those emotions.
1: That's what I'm thinking. Emotions are scary. They they freak you out. And especially if you're used to running away from them and putting distance between you and feeling anything, you, you kind of grow this natural repulsion to conversations about emotions or feeling emotions. So it makes sense that it's scary, but... Um I remember this being a very big module for me and we're going to have a an emotional chat right now. I wish oh, there was like a soundboard. Yeah, that was like you know, but <laughs> I'm excited.
0: I'm with you. Like as a psychologist, I'm in the business of working through emotions, but personally, I don't like the way my emotions make me feel. They're quite uncomfortable and if I could just live in my mind and my thinking, I'd stay there. I don't really enjoy spending a lot of time in my body and feeling things. And I think over the years, I've, I've learned the benefit of doing so. But it was definitely a practice to get more comfortable with first slowing down and checking in. Like, what am I feeling? Um, but it took me some convincing to look at what is the utility to actually listen to my emotions? Because they don't always feel very good. So I'm curious for you, were there any particular emotions that were more difficult for you or any beliefs where like i don't want to do this whole emotional thing like what was your introduction to maybe approaching emotions a little bit more
1: this program was my introduction to emotions hmm. i i don't want to throw a percentage on it probably because of how embarrassingly high it would be but the level of unrecognition towards my emotions was just bad. And I think that's where the danger comes from, is going through this program, it put the emotions I was feeling into view and helped me feel those. And that that was a scary part was like, oh, I actually do hate being lonely, and I I didn't really know that, and ironically, I wanted to be alone because I didn't think I'd be accepted by others if they really knew who I was, and so it just creates this big pot of dissonance, Um, and I'm trying to think shame is obviously the big one, Um, and articulating shame is scary. And I feel like everything about shame is fear and secrecy. Um, and these are all big words. And so I going through these emotion modules was a very big, it's a big undertaking. And I give props to anyone who really dives deep yeah. and, and, feels what they're feeling it's scary
0: yeah it is scary and it's work and you touched on two of my least favorite ones to fill and loneliness (laughs) is like it is so universal we all can connect with that feeling of loneliness and when you're feeling that emotion it it can feel so permanent and so dark and so hopeless at times and i'm always amazed when i'm leading a therapy group and we touch on that emotion of loneliness, you know, one by one, everybody talks about that experience of loneliness in their life. And after a half an hour or so, we're all sitting together, experiencing loneliness together. And that's always such an intriguing thing to experience, this emotion of loneliness. It's a solitary emotion, but to fill it together because it is a universal emotion. But I think because it can be so threatening, we'll do almost anything not to feel lonely. And that can include looking at sexual images like, oh, there's somebody else there. You know, it's distracting you, that feeling. And I feel a little bit of connection or we turn to food where it's like, oh, that helps me feel better. And anything that will distract us, we'll go to social media or, you know, flip through the news, anything to escape that discomfort of loneliness. And yet. Really the way to get back control in our life is to be able to sit and identify, wow, I am feeling lonely right now. This is what this feels like. This is such a universal emotion. People knows what this is like and this emotion really is just communicating to me, I probably need some connection right now. but that is a vulnerable thing. And like you said, if you feel a lot of shame, it's like, well, I feel lonely and I want to connect. but I'm really afraid they're going to reject me if they really knew who I am, oh shoot, I don't wanna feel shame or loneliness. I guess I'll just keep looking at sexual images and just keep kicking that emotional can down the road. But how we flip that all the way around is to really practice slowing down and feeling lonely and taking those risks to form connections and to start to talk about the shame that we feel about ourselves, which is also universal. But that that's scary. It really is scary, which is another emotion where you like, oh, say, I don't want to feel fear. It's like all these things, I don't want to feel any of them. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Even though that evokes further feelings of shame and feeling like you're going to be alone forever because that behavior is so isolating. But it makes sense why we keep engaging in this coping strategy because these emotions, they feel bottomless and yet they're not. They are temporary and really they're there to communicate to us a need, but that's vulnerable to share that. And it feels very human. And it's a risk to let people in to say, I'm feeling some stuff.
1: It's always so funny to hear it put so clearly. Cause I, I hear that and it's like loneliness, I think is, I, I like what you said. It's so universal. And I don't think people who struggle with uh, watching naked people having sex and sexual imagery, have a monopoly on loneliness as an emotion. It's across the board. I think every struggle humans face has some tie to uh, feelings of loneliness. But identifying with that and being like, yeah, you're right. Like I do feel lonely. And then it's, because I feel lonely, I want connection. It's like, yeah, you're right. I do want connection. And then you want connection, but you feel like you can't have it because of the shame. You're like, yes, I want it, but I don't want it because of the shame. And then it's now I'm afraid because of the shame. And it's just, it's a vicious cycle. And even thinking of that cycle creates anxiety yeah. And could create depression. And I think we've brought it up so many times. There's this feedback loop
0: yeah.
1: of you can get anxious about your anxiety, depressed about your depression. You can struggle with your struggle or yep. the fact that you even have a struggle. And I, that's where emotions, if left avoided and unkempt, can really kind of trip you up.
0: I think you got it. And I don't even think we talk about this in the modules, but how you said that reminded me of that idea that there's clean pain and dirty pain or primary pain and secondary pain. And and that primary pain is those feelings that we feel are just part of life. And those are emotions like loneliness when there's disconnection or shame um, or grief and loss. Those are primary pains that we just cannot escape. That just comes with the territory of being humans. But as we try to avoid that primary pain, that's when we experience suffering. And that's often what depression and anxiety is, is it comes from trying to avoid things that are unavoidable. And that's just kind of our mind trying to help us get away from this primary pain that can be so deep and so core. But avoiding these things leads to other problems. It leads to suffering. It leads to compulsions least other mental health problems in our life. And so it does come back down to our comfort and willingness to experience pain. And if we are like, I don't want to feel those things, it's like, well, then you're going to suffer. And I think to have this life that we truly want, that's meaningful, it does require us, require us to actually get comfortable with feeling pain and approaching that more and creating more space for that. And really happiness and well-being isn't the absence of pain. That is so unrealistic. Our mind might think that and there might be commercials about that. There might be an expectation or a belief we had. But if we can truly create space for feelings of loneliness or grief and loss and identify that and share that with people and take those risks, there's so many things that we can pursue in our life if we allow those things to be there. If they can't be there we're going to suffer. And like you said, there's a cascade of secondary emotions and mental health concerns that show up. If we can't experience that primary pain.
1: And this is where I really respect the layout of the life after program as it brings language into view before all this, because, and I want to ask you about this as well, but the it's, a language around the emotions that really gets me too. And I think, in I don't know if it's culture or society or media that portrays it like this, or if it's our minds that just tell us these stories. But a lot of those scary emotions, the thoughts running through my head are, I should not feel this.
0: Mm-hmm
1: or I should be happy all the time, or I shouldn't feel lonely. And that that's really where I, I got tripped up. And I, I don't know if there's any parallels between the fact that when we get the, like even most minor paper cut or headache, we slam an ibuprofen and numb it, right? Like we just escape feeling. And I mean, it makes sense as a human condition that we want to, survive and not experience pain willingly but understanding that pain comes primarily because we're human and accepting that is one thing but telling ourselves that we shouldn't ever experience that is just a dangerous game yeah i think
0: oh go ahead
1: i was just i'm just curious is that I feel like it's the combination. There's this equation here of should and should not plus emotion equals suffering.
0: Yeah. I think you're right. So let's look at that. So if our problem solving mind is designed to help us survive, it's going to interpret any type of pain as a threat to our survival. And it's going to say, Hey, let's get away from that as quickly as we can. And so we can experience physical pain and injury that, might actually be a threat to our survival. And it's going to say, hey, we got to fix that. We got to get out of here. We need some help. It's going to interpret emotional pain in the same way. And so I think sometimes it starts to tell stories and has these rules and these should statements, probably in in an effort to get us away from that emotional pain. And it's like, if you're not feeling that, I did my job. So, wow, you're feeling really lonely. Well, that's really scary. So you shouldn't feel lonely. Phew, we dodged that one. Oh, now you're not feeling lonely anymore. But emotions just don't go away like that. It doesn't obey a verbal command like that. But I wonder if it is our mind's attempt to say, whoa, that's a threat. This is scary. You know, you'd feel a lot better if you weren't feeling any of this stuff. Maybe you shouldn't feel it. <laughs> Maybe it's wrong. You, It's not normal. You shouldn't feel this way. Trying to like talk us out of our emotions that's the only tool our mind has. It only has language. It only has words. It only has stories. And it's probably kind of fighting for its job. It's like, hey, I'm in charge and I'm superior. I know what's best. Just listen to me. And these emotions come up and it's like a threat to its job security. It's like, no, you shouldn't be filling those. Don't listen <laughs> to those. Push those back down. They're scary. They're unsafe and you shouldn't feel them anyway. But really the balance is being able to listen to our thoughts. We have a wonderful mind that can think through so many things and hold so many variables, but we also have these emotions that are intricately tied to our nervous system. It's always scan our environment. And both our thoughts and our emotions are information about what we need to do and what needs we need to take care of. And but I think there is a societal expectation that you know emotions are weak or subjective and really reasoning is best. And sometimes we have that patriarchal kind of bent where it's like, you know, men, we're, we're ruled by logic and reason. And sometimes women are ruled by emotions. We should be more manly and and think through things. And that is not helpful at all. Um, That really that mental health and that balance comes from listening to our thoughts, our reasons, but also our feelings and our emotions and getting in touch with our body. There's really not a goal that we need to somehow conquer emotions and be rational beings. That doesn't make any sense. But it's also doesn't make sense the other way. It's like we should just let our emotions, you know, run the show. Like neither of those are helpful. And we really we want to get these to function in tandem. But you're right, should statements interfere with us accessing those emotions. And if we don't access those emotions, they just get bigger and then maybe at another level a should statement is just a judgment and any judgment is going to interfere with us being present and creating space for that emotion so if we say we shouldn't be feeling something that's really just a fancy judgment where what we're feeling is wrong or bad and judgments are really counter to mindfulness which we know is going to be really helpful for getting more in touch with our emotions and getting in line with those and really steering away from compulsive behaviors.
1: That's a very interesting point. I've never thought of it as an evaluative mindset because by definition, that takes you out of mindfulness. Yep. Which is so fascinating and that's, sorry, I'm trying to process that because when you're observing and understanding and you create that conscious space for yourself to, to look at those emotions, but the second you say, there's an emotion, I probably shouldn't be feeling that. That's no longer mindful, you become fused to that emotion into the story around that emotion. And so that's that, that's just an interesting concept to go into because that, that's I slipped into that a lot was the emotions are going to rise regardless. yep, but it's all of a sudden, oh gosh, like there's loneliness. shouldn't have that and that evaluation creates story more language and you're back in the struggle.
0: You got it. So many times I'm working with somebody and and they're struggling with feelings of depression or anxiety. And then often after they tell me what they're feeling, they say, but I shouldn't be feeling any of these because I've got a good family or I'm in college or a good job. I shouldn't have any of these. And it's like, yeah, that right there, what you just did is why you're struggling (laughs) that. And for me, you know, from an act, lens we're we're truly trying to attend to those that language because that's often what keeps us stuck and that should is a word that really jumps out and that should represents a couple things it's a story it's a rule that's not based on actual experiences and it's a judgment all that packed into one little word and so if you want to start attending to the should statements that you tell yourself that could be a little flag where it's like oh there's something there that should statement is probably trying to help me avoid an emotion, or that's contributing to a story that's keeping me stuck. Wow, there's something behind that should statement. So I would just really zoom in on that if you start to hear those statements. And shoulds, I think about the first time I heard about shoulds was probably in grad school, learning about Albert Ellis. And he was a pretty rough psychologist. And he developed an approach called rational emotive behavioral therapy, and it was pretty aggressive. It's not like the the warm, empathetic approach, but it's also quite effective. And something Albert Ellis would say is, "You need to stop shooting on yourself." And that always stuck in my mind. Like, oh, that's that's clever, you know. Over the years, as I've paid more attention to language and really look at the role of shoulds, it's like you're right. You know, we should all over ourselves all the time. It, it's just we're knee deep in shoulds and that language just keeps us so stuck and it doesn't help us access that emotion or move forward. It's just a heuristic to quickly judge it, to help us avoid it. And that little should, you know, really is something pivotal that keeps us so stuck. Um, But our mind's generating that should. So it's not going to be that aware that it's even doing it and shoulds just call fall out of people's mouth left and right, left and right. And so as you start to track that, and often we become more aware of shoulds as we practice mindfulness, then we start to say, oh, there's a lot of emotions there. And like you mentioned, these emotions got more intense for you. They got much stronger. You're much more aware of those. And so often what people experience is kind of a resurgence of the coping behavior. where It's like, oh, my gosh, I'm feeling more loneliness, more shame, more fear. And often people start to view sexual images even more for a little bit, or turn to eating even more, or gaming or social media. Because like, wow, that is more intense. I'm not used to that. I'm going to revert back to that coping strategy, and that's pretty common. But what I see is this pattern: is people are learning these act concepts, doing pretty well, making some improvements, and they're like, yeah, I'm going to start filling stuff. And then it's like, ah, some of that viewing behavior I didn't like came back, and now all the progress I've made goes away. And I got to start over and everything I've learned, everything I've observed just doesn't count. And it's like wiped out. And I often it shows up around this module. So we throw in the parking lot metaphor, which I love where it's like, imagine you show up to your first day of college and you're getting ready to go and you're heading to your class and you trip and you fall and you pick up all your stuff and you head back to the car and you start over. And you do this again and again and again, and you never get to class and you're so excited. All your friends are there. You really want to learn the material, but because you tripped and made a mistake and it wasn't flawless, you got to keep going back again and again and again. And I found that that metaphor really hits people where it's like, oh, that's ridiculous. Just get up and go to class. But it's like, when it comes to things like pornography, anytime someone views again, it's like it's all over, gotta start over, ground zero, nothing works, all that shame comes back and we forget that cracks are part of life and we don't even know there are cracks because we're going as fast as we can and this module is really trying to orient people that look down a little bit at this path you're walking on in life a little bit more and these cracks are emotions. These are typically the things that precede an urge to look at sexual images. But we're so unaware of these emotions and so uncomfortable with them. We just keep running, keep falling. And we don't know what happened. And we say, oh, the porn did it. The addiction did it. But it's typically emotions. And those emotions are like, ah, oh, those are some scary cracks. Like, I would prefer they weren't there and I could pretend they're not there. But that doesn't change the fact that emotions are part of this landscape that we're navigating. And so our options are to keep our head up and keep running and tripping or to slow down and look and be like, yeah, there's some cracks. This isn't perfect. And sometimes I need to navigate these a little bit better and have some people around me and reach out when I'm struggling. And if I do stumble and feel something overwhelming and turn to an unhelpful coping strategy, I don't need to start over. I can learn from this experience and keep it going.
1: Yeah, I I think in terms of being able to relate wholly to a metaphor, this parking lot one is just nails it right on the head. And to maybe share some personal experience with what you brought up earlier of when people might start noticing the emotions more and those should statements are still there the behavior can come back even stronger and and i know i experienced that because i was completely unaware of my emotions um, to begin with and so once i started looking at them i was like freaking out that i can't be feeling these things and i don't i shouldn't feel these things and the only thing i can think of is in cartoons or movies i'm thinking of get smart when there's all the lasers in the room and he's doing good and then he hits one and then you move so fast that you end up hitting them all and i feel like that's like you're you're doing good and you might be going through and all of a sudden you're you hit one and you're aware, but now you're just, you're tripping and falling and you kind of, the behavior comes back and hits you again. Um, but I feel like that's part of the process. So in in me saying all this, I just hope that it's not discouraging to people yep. if that behavior does come back. And I know you articulate that a few times um, in some of the beginning videos of the modules is i want you to be aware like is your behavior is it even more than before and the fact that you even say that is like oh okay maybe that's it's normal it's a possibility yep. whereas on the other side you'd be like oh I, it shouldn't be more than <laughs> it was before right and now you have another should statement <laughs> yeah. but sorry to go back to that parking lot metaphor i I think it's another one of those like frustratingly accurate things that once you understand it, you're like, I have done that so many times. And especially if you get wrapped up in the addiction model,
0: yeah.
1: relapse sends you right back to the car. Um, and it's scary to even want to walk out and try the walk again. But that's where ACT comes in is the slowing down mindfully aware of emotions it's okay to hit one or two or a lot but getting to class is the important part yep and not doing it perfectly
0: yep yeah and if you keep tripping up on the same emotion as you head to class every day it's like yeah we got to spend more time figuring out you know what is this emotion what is this fear that's showing up or for a lot of people And this may seem, I don't know, if you struggle with compulsive behaviors, it may not seem that strange, but often people are experiencing the emotion of boredom. And it's like, yeah, on the way to class, I got kind of bored. And so I looked at sexual images or I ate a lot of food or I gamed for a couple hours. It's like boredom is not that scary. It's not that intense, but it is an emotion. And if that's the emotion tripping you up every day, it's like, wow, I got to practice feeling bored. And that can be really key where it's like, wait, I got to practice just not doing anything or get distracted and feel okay with that. And it's like, yeah, a lot of life is pretty boring. It's a lot of waiting, a lot of buffering. There's a lot of downtime. And for a lot of people, it's not these intense emotions. It's ones like boredom because it's so commonplace, but it's also kind of uncomfortable.
1: Can I ask, you said for those who struggle with compulsive behaviors, boredom, night might not be or did you you say it might not be a common emotion or
0: no it it might not be surprising that boredom is one of those
1: oh oh okay i was like why would people with compulsive (laughs) behaviors not recognize that but okay
0: yeah i think they experience it more where often as i've worked through through folks they may have been viewing because there's you know, intense feelings of loss or grief and we work through that or feelings of sadness or loneliness or shame. We work through all that. Like, yeah, I'm able to create space. And it's like, I kept viewing this week. And it's like, oh, what were you feeling? It's like, I don't know. I, th- I think I was just kind of bored. Like, yeah, the three times I viewed this week, it was boredom. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, it, it can be any emotion that precedes it. And I think sometimes we, I don't know if we rank emotions or there's scary ones or intense ones, but Any emotion organizes us for action. And so if we're not willing to experience any particular emotion, it can contribute to compulsive behaviors. And I've seen boredom show up. And it's often one where we're taught, where it's like, oh, you know, we just need to keep busy. And if a kid's not busy, then they're getting to get in trouble. It's like, actually, it's okay to practice not being busy. And to taking some time where you don't need to entertain yourself, you don't need to have your earbuds in, you don't need to have a show on, you don't need music. Sometimes we can sit and feel bored. And that's honestly one of my favorite things I hear from my kids. It used to be irritating. They'd say, Dad, I'm bored. And I'd be like, oh, gosh, there's so many things you can do. And now my response is, oh, I'm so glad you're bored. That's a really important emotion to experience and a really common one. Go ahead and fill this for a while. Let's see what happens. And typically like, whatever, Dad. And in a few moments pass, and they're not bored anymore, and they have an idea, and they move forward. But sometimes when we're bored, it's like, well, I don't want to do the work to figure it out. I'll just ask my dad. And he'll tell me what I could do. But boredom can lead to creativity and so many things you really want to do. But we just don't even take a moment to feel bored. We just flee from it and try to entertain ourselves or escape. But each of these motions has a particular function and can be really key and can be a track or a crack um, in this landscape. And so the more I thought about these emotions the more I realized I probably need to do a little bit more. So I did develop an extra little mini course in the lab program. that's called enhancing emotional awareness where it goes through some key emotions. So you can practice not only identifying these emotions, but understanding their function a little bit more and getting more comfortable with those. I think if you've, you've lived a life, trying to get rid of those, you know, we kind of need to learn about them. That's a step. And then be aware of those and practice feeling those. There's actually a bit of a learning curve to emotions, especially if you're pretty practiced at avoiding those, which really is the hallmark of compulsion.
1: I can testify to that. (laughs) 100%. I think one of the most validating things in the program is the learning curve of emotions. And I know we brought up an analogy. I don't even know what number of podcasts we're on now, but earlier we, we brought up an analogy of maybe an obstacle course. And most of us are just running through it blindfolded and clotheslining ourselves on like the monkey bars, right? But it was cool to go through that and realize that some of the obstacles that are the metaphorical emotions look the same and can be identified with that learning curve. And there's a lot of power in understanding that and walking to class and seeing an anxiety obstacle or crack in the parking lot and being able to say like, I've been here before, like I'm aware of this. I know how to navigate it. Let's just keep going versus, okay, that looks like anxiety, Oh gosh, that's anxiety. I shouldn't. Oh no. Oh no. And then you trip, right? Like there is that learning curve, but once you're on that, it is very validating to, to go through that. And maybe you're successful and then you trip and then you're successful three times. Like it's, it's a cool process to go through.
0: I like how you said that it, it is this learning curve. It's complex, it's dynamic. And that's realistic is there's a lot to learn about how our bodies work and how emotions work and how that interacts in our relationships in our life. And that's so different from often people's mindset when they first come in to say, my goal is to never look at porn again. That's treatment success. And then in my mind, I'm thinking like, well, that, the, the urge to view porn is in response to these complex emotional reactions. So focusing on, I never want to look at porn again. Then I know I'm good to go. That is like believing that I'll never struggle navigating any emotion in my life. And it's like, that does not that's not realistic. That we might get more comfortable with anxiety or loneliness. But then our life throws us new situations, new demands, new responsibilities, more complexity. And as soon as you get comfortable with one level of emotion, there's like another level another layer and it just grows. And these emotions can be so rich and layered and complex and so meaningful that as you traverse that terrain, sometimes it's still an emotion where it's, your mind's still going to say, I don't want to feel that. Why don't you go look at sexual images to get away from that? And so as you progress in this learning curve and ability to feel emotions, your mind's still going to recommend escaping those and occasionally, you're probably going to be like, okay, mine, you're right. I've never come across this emotional territory before. I don't want to feel it anymore. I'm going to look at sexual images for a while. And then your mind is going to say, oh, see, right there, you, you relapsed. Go back to the parking lot. Start over. But what we fail to recognize is you've progressed a lot in that journey. You've learned a lot. It's just a new challenge level. And so I think our mind wants to say this is going to be a linear process that you will see consistent reductions in this problematic behavior every single day. But the reality is we're really hiking up a mountain. And as you traverse a mountain, there's switchbacks and you're going back and forth. And sometimes it's really clear, you can see your progress. Other times you're lost in the jungle. And I think about as you're going up a mountain, your elevation fluctuates a lot. That There's times you climbed really high and it's like, wow, look how high I am. And times that you need to actually descend to keep going up in the mountain. And it's often in those moments where it's like, oh my gosh, look at this. Like I'm back to where I was before and I viewed sexual images or I'm feeling this again. I must not be making any progress. That's really just another part of the path. That's part of the progression, part of the learning. We don't go straight up a mountain. We wind around and the whole time we're logging miles. And sometimes in those low moments, our mind's going to say, look how much you've regressed. You're behind where you were. But the reality is, it never works like that. We're always learning and progressing. I think we can make ourselves go in circles with the stories and the shoulds and the the relapses and starting over. But really, any moment of awareness and growth and learning, and even occasionally doing unhealthy coping, is still progress. If we allow it to be a teacher, we're still getting closer to that peak.
1: Yeah, as you talked about that that mountain climb and your thoughts about the ascent and the descent, it's that evaluative mind that complicates it. It's it looks like I'm heading down. I shouldn't go down. Like I must not be going the right way. And that's complete that's an evaluation. That's not mindful in any respect. It's it's not observing your experience yep. and I think that's again that's where it's important to create the conscious space and observe your experience rather than evaluate that and so it's it's and it's cool because I, I I think at most everyone's climbed a mountain before and you know that sometimes you do have to go down to go further up and that just seems like such a logical thing. But for some reason in our lives, we think it's regressing when it's really progressing.
0: Yep. You got it. And so I think, you know, as I'm working with folks and they're learning these concepts and practicing these principles, and we'll kind of check in. I don't really, if they say, yeah, I haven't viewed pornography, I don't get like excited and be like, oh, success. Or they come back and say, oh, I didn't. I viewed a lot more this week. I don't be like, oh, no. Discouraged and failure, you know, either directions barely irrelevant. It's were you observing? You know, what was different where you viewed less? Were you observing? What was different where you viewed more? Like as long as you're observing and starting to attend to, like, oh yeah, I had more connection this week. And I approached things that were scary and I felt really fulfilled. And oh yeah, I I did view less this week. Interesting. Or oh yeah, this week, I, I just felt overwhelmed and. Kind of withdrew and shut down. Oh yeah, and I did view more. Oh yeah, there were different emotions going on. Either way, that awareness and learning is traversing up the mountain, but our mind's going to say no. Success or failure is contingent on if you viewed or not, and it really isn't, that doesn't have anything to do with the path. That's a reaction to the path. We want to understand the path that we're on, and often that path is emotions. And it's understanding it, attending to it, listening to it. And that's why we still have mindfulness exercises at the beginning of every module. And I encourage people to keep practicing this. And people skip it. It's like, no, let's keep doing the cool stuff. And it's like, yeah, the cool stuff. is If we just intellectualize it, it's not going to have an impact. We really need to get in touch with the path. And get in touch with those emotions. And then we start to see that learning and that growth. And reduction in behavior, ultimately, but as we're learning this initially, it's, it's just not as relevant. We want to get in touch with those emotions.
1: That, that's it. There's this equation and it, it, I'm just trying to think of my, my own progress within that, because I do know that even when you're in that learning curve, there is a part when you're starting to go up, but maybe it's headed downward a little bit. And you, I'm sure everyone who is in this struggle can relate to the fact that the the relapse terminology comes back and it's, even though you're on the curve, you're back to square one. And it's, it's again, it's being aware of where you are on that curve versus evaluating a slight downward trend does not put you back at the beginning. You're the time, the x-axis is always moving forward. It can never go back. But for well, like some that. reasons our minds think it can. Like I can't time travel, but apparently when it comes to my progress in my porn struggle, I can time travel better than anyone else. Like,
0: yep. I like that. I, I can visualize that graph. That x-axis is an arrow, and it's always moving forward. It doesn't yeah. go backwards. It's forward. I love that that visual.
1: Yeah. And I think, like you said, the the trajectory of your graph is far more indicative of progress than any specific point where you are on that line.
0: Yep. And, and that trajectory, yeah. Like if you're engaged in mindfulness and learning act, and engaged in life after pornography, your trajectory is in the direction we would want. You're learning and growing and working on this.
1: And that's another interesting thing because even if it's headed up or it's headed down, it's headed forward, forward, and that's what we want. Yep. it's progress. Like you're you're moving forward.
0: It's forward. It is. And I think those emotions, they're tricky. So we we talked about shame. And I think at at the root of most people's compulsive sexual behaviors is sexual shame. Our mind tells the story, ah, it's an addiction. That's why I'm struggling with porn. But really it's it's shame around our body and around sexuality. It's shame. And so as you start to make some progress and there's a glimmer of hope and some fulfillment and some connection. Shame's going to say, that's scary. And I know you don't like to feel shame because it's dark and lonely down here. But you know what? It's familiar and it's safe. So the second there's a little mistake, come back to the safety of the shame basement. Come back. I kept your room open for you. There's no lights in here. It sure (laughs) is dark and cold. But it's safe and familiar. And I think that's part of it is some of this is predictable. Because if we're struggling through that shame, shame really is trying to protect us in some ways. It keeps us stuck and it limits us reaching out. But shame's like, hey, the world's scary. You might get rejected. Come back here. And it's trying to get us to hide to protect us in a way. So as you start to make some progress and reconnect with people and reach out and learn about yourself, you're going to be experiencing new things that are scary. And that... Response to go back to shame is is gonna be there. That's just kind of part of this trajectory. So also in this module, we share the dangerous river metaphor to really help people reconnect with the roots of sexual shame. That often growing up, we we weren't taught about our bodies and about sexuality, and it's kind of like never learning how to swim, never learning about rivers because those might be really dangerous and scary. So no one's gonna tell you about them. They're never gonna sign you up for swim lessons. And yet every kid loves to play in the water and skip rocks and the kids are going to get in the water and they're going to get wet and it's going to get scary. And it's like a lot of these things we struggle with that become compulsive don't have to be if we had good river guides that said, Hey, there's water, here's sexuality. It's normal. It's curious. Oh, there's sexual images. You are programmed to be turned on by those. You were going to get aroused. That's normal. That's healthy. Instead, it's like, oh, that's porn. That's really bad. It's really evil. It's an addiction. Don't ever get involved. And the kid's like, okay, I won't do it. And then the little kid sees it and it's like, oh, my gosh, I find that intriguing and exciting. And I, and I got aroused. What does that say about me? And that's planting the seeds for sexual shame. And that can take a long time to get out of that. But I don't think that has to necessarily be a part of our trajectory or learning curve. For many of us, we go through that. But sexual shame, it doesn't have to be. But I think that's partly why the behavior of looking at sexual images kind of fluctuates is because we are so used to shame. It can be so debilitating and so profound. that as we start to inch out of that, sometimes we go back to that for a little bit. And that's part of the journey. It's not like, oh, I left the shame basement. I'll never be there again. It's like, Oh my goodness. I've left my shame basement. I don't know how many times. And I'm still going to go back there because there's a lot of things that trigger shame in my life, in everyone's life. And it's recognizing that you're in the basement and knowing how to get back out of it. Like once you understand the emotions and the function, it's like, Oh, this is where I'm at. Oh, I know how to get out of shame. It's vulnerability. It's connection. It's conversation. Oh yeah. I know how to do that. It's scary every time, but like, that's the door. That's how you get out of it. And there'll be other times where you go back in the basement, we can get out of it again. There's a learning process there. We develop that capacity. But as we learn and grow and that capacity grows, we're still going to have those impulses to not fill those things. That's going to be part of it. And our mind's not going to like that and say, see, you're still an addict. And it just isn't that. It's just our mind's trying to help us not fill things. And that's what keeps us stuck. And the story keeps us stuck. But if we can fill it, we can get in the basement and we don't have to spend days and weeks and months there. We can be like, Oh yep, My 10 minutes are up. Time to leave the basement. Let's move on.
1: I love that shift. And I think it goes back to, it was either two modules ago with thanking your mind for just wanting to help. Um, And I, you can do the same thing with your emotions in the way that I've never thought of shame as being helpful I don't think anyone <laughs> would jump to that conclusion right off the bat. But ironically, that's exactly what it is. It's taking you back to that familiar place that you've been so many times. And it it makes sense why that emotion comes up so frequently. Yep. Is because any foreign experience or... specifically with sexuality and that river metaphor, how often we come across, I mean, kids could see like a glass of water and they're like water, glass, water, river. Oh my gosh, shame, right? Like it's so easy to have that shame come back up and to draw back into that. Um, But being able to say, thank you, mind. Okay. Shame trying to help me out, but I I don't really want to crawl back into that space right now. I'm being vulnerable i'm connecting i'm going to stay out here but i i'm understanding your phrasing as well of i still go back to shame for things other than sexuality too it's yep. everything from social behaviors and feeling ashamed of entering a group yep. that maybe you don't fit into super well it's it's everywhere and it's a very common and recognizable emotion if you're looking for it and aware of it
0: you got it and it's just programmed into our nervous system i think as mammals we have this really sophisticated nervous system and defense strategy that if there's a threat you know ideally we're going to fight it um, or run away and if we can't do that then we're going to freeze and often that freeze response or shutdown response is shame. And it just really comes from, oh, I've I've met a threat that I can't escape. I can't fight against it and I can't escape from it. I'm just going to shut down. And that's shame. And I think that's often what happens around sexuality for people, where if you're taught that, you know, the river or sexuality is bad and it's sinful and it's dangerous and it's an addiction, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to fight against it as much as I can. It's like, oh, I fought a lot and didn't go away. I guess I'll run away as much as I can. And shoot, there's water everywhere. There's nothing else I can do. And all we have left is collapse and withdraw and shame because sexuality in this river is internal. It's part of us. And I like that glass of water thinking about that, that that glass of water, we probably need to drink a bunch of those every day. We're mostly water. We're water creatures with like a thin membrane holding all the water in. We need water to function. We can go a lot longer without food. We can't without water. We need it. It's part of us. That's sexuality. Sexuality is designed to connect us. It's innate. It's part of who we are. And yet we're socialized that we got to fight it. You got to run away from it. And that ultimately is going to lead to, I I don't know what else to do. I'm going to collapse into shame. And shame is that last resort where you tried every other strategy. This is all we got left because we're trying to fight against something that's part of us. That's not even dangerous or threatening, but our mind tells us that story and we react to it at a nervous system level as if it's a danger. And when we start to understand that we can let go of the fight, let go of the struggle, reconnect with that part of us that is so good and natural and is there to connect us. And we can start to leave that shame basement. We don't need that strategy to survive anymore. We don't need to go through that anymore.
1: Can I flip the script a little bit real quick? The majority of this conversation, there've been a lot of like negative emotions, mm. but I'm curious now, as you're talking about there's river metaphor and um, I'm curious about the positive emotions mm. and I can imagine in people's experience who might engage in um, sexual behavior with another individual, and having positive experiences around that might contribute to shame as well, because of maybe a story of, oh, I was told this is a dangerous river, and I shouldn't feel good or happy because of this. And I don't really know how to articulate all this, but I think there's positive emotions that can trap us too. We just seem to focus on all the negative.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think there are a lot of positive emotions. And I've, I've worked with some folks that say, hey, I have understand some of those negative emotions that are precede an urge to view. But sometimes when I'm feeling really happy or content, I have an urge to view sexual images. And I don't know why. And for me, it's like, yeah, emotions are emotions. And if we're not comfortable with feeling the negative ones, we may not be that comfortable with feeling the positive ones either. But also some emotions like themselves. So if you're feeling sad, often you want to listen to sad music and you feel more sad. Or if you're feeling really content and fulfilled, you might want to continue that way and you might have that urge to view sexual images. So I think that can show up. So I'm glad you broadened that scope. But also I would think I would add that We've talked about sexuality and sexual behavior as a way to connect us, but also sexual activity is very pleasurable. And I think our society has an odd relationship with pleasure, that if you're engaging in things that are pleasurable, you don't have self-control, or you're being lazy, or it's not productive, or, you know, you should get in the gym a little bit more, or you know, I think we struggle with things that are pleasurable. And yet there's so many things, things that we could eat or things that we could enjoy with music or entertainment or conversations or art that really are just pleasurable. They're not productive, but the act of engaging in those is pleasurable. And sex is a pleasurable activity. And yet often we associate that, oh, we shouldn't have pleasure around this. This is a really bad thing. But That's kind of the purpose of it, that a lot of life is work and a lot of it's pain and suffering. There's a lot of things that are quite pleasurable and actually practicing comfort around pleasure. That might be a learning curve too. I know that has been for me. Like I love to work and I love being productive and I can work, work, work all day. And the second I sit down to enjoy some chocolate pudding, which is probably my favorite treat, or to enjoy a show, I start to struggle and those shoulds come up. It's like, ah, you're enjoying this too much. You shouldn't, you know, you should do something else. Be more productive. It's okay to feel pleasure, especially around sexuality. It's one of its primary functions is it gets you in the moment, gets you connected with your body, gets you connected with a partner and you're experiencing pleasure. And that may seem odd, but a lot of people are uncomfortable experiencing pleasure. We haven't built in a lot of time and acceptance for that emotion And that's a big part of it, too. And so people have been so focused on, I got to get rid of this problematic behavior and then I'm good to go. That's not sexual health. Part of sexual health is creating this capacity for giving and receiving pleasure. And for a lot of people, it hasn't crossed their minds. Like, no, I got to eliminate this bad behavior and then I'm good to go. It's like, no, part of sexual health is getting comfortable with pleasure. And for a lot of people, that's uncomfortable to think about. And yet that is a huge part of sexuality.
1: See, yeah, that's, I find that equally as fascinating that it extends to both up and down of pain and pleasure. And there's a learning curve for both. And I think we're just so well acquainted with pain because we feel it so often that that's the learning curve we really want to focus on. Um, And granted, I think it, should be focused on a lot um but also pleasure and being able to because i i think beyond sexuality if we're using that parking lot metaphor walking to class and getting to class and being fulfilled by our values there's a pleasure around that yeah but if we're uncomfortable with that we won't be able to enjoy that to the fullest and our our own uncomfortability around pleasure may hold us back from the very things that we're trying to do as well as an uncomfortability around pain.
0: Yep.
1: And it's it's just this fascinating human dynamic that we're trying to figure out but um I don't know I'm glad I I've just been curious about that for a little bit of how it extends both positively as well as negative.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And and I thought about this that you know before we started this chat, we both talked about a couple people have reached out to us that said, oh, I've been listening to your podcast and I've learned a lot and benefited. And, <laughs> yep. and for me, just talking about that was quite pleasurable. Just the thought that wow, people have actually listened. This has been helpful. The one person I chatted with said I've listened to every podcast. And it's like wow I haven't listened to every podcast we've done. We record them, we post them, and we do another one. But it's like, that's really neat. And if I was uncomfortable with that, I'd be like, oh, I don't want to hear that. Like, nah, let's move on. But i actually like, wow, I appreciate that. Thank you for letting me know that you've listened and that these have had an impact on you. And I just thanked him. I said, I appreciate your kind words. That means a lot. And that was quite pleasurable. It was to get that satisfaction that this work we put into made an impact and it's unexpected. And if we were uncomfortable with that or compliments, we'd miss out on that pleasure. But there's a lot of fruits to your labor. And sometimes we're like, well, we'll just do the labor and not eat the fruit. It's like, no, like you can enjoy the sweet fruit that comes from a lot of the work that's hard and dirty and uncomfortable. There's often these really beautiful rewards, but that's another skill to practice is actually enjoying the fruit.
1: And tying that in, I think a big part of connection in its implications with health is giving and receiving. Yeah. And for someone who is notoriously bad at accepting compliments, you to you've always heard like, well, you're denying the other people the joy of giving you that compliment, right? And I think especially if you're stuck in the shame of a struggle with compulsive pornography use, it's... You don't feel worthy of any of those compliments when in reality learning how to accept those and be comfortable with those might be one step to helping you overcome this struggle and helping you connect and it's that's a cool realization that as you get more comfortable giving and receiving communication or connection um will come easier and Sorry, that's just a really cool insight.
0: Oh, I love how you said that. That if you're someone that's like, oh, I don't like giving compliments. It's like, well, actually, if you practice that, that actually might help you with this struggle because you're right. That giving and receiving, if it's sexuality or compliments or work, is an act of vulnerability. And the more you can say, wow, what you did had an impact on me. I appreciate that. It's like, oh, thank you for sharing that and acknowledging that that's vulnerability on both sides. And sexuality and sexual activity is an act of vulnerability on a really intense scale. And being able to get comfortable with that is going to be that antidote to compulsive behaviors and that discomfort around emotions. And so these are all these different ways we can practice these things. And they all come back to that core and help keep us out of that shame basement even longer and into this life that we really want.
1: Amen. all i've got (laughs) amen
0: let's wrap it up there this is another fun chat and we have four more modules left there it is we're getting closer this has been so fun
1: it has in seven values right
0: we're up to values next the ladder to get you out of the pit we're actually going to drop down the ladder
1: oh love it love it all right i'm excited
0: all right till next time See ya. See you, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe. I know you might be facing some issues in your life or know someone who is. Issues like anxiety, challenges in dealing with emotions, or other compulsive behaviors like unwanted pornography. And I know it's tough to talk to people about problems. Difficult to stare those obstacles down that we face in life and to really know how to deal with them. It's hard to know what to say and when to say it. And then when that moment you finally reach out to family and friends happens, sometimes it falls flat. I haven't found many programs teaching effective strategies like mindfulness, how to improve relationships, and ways to address unwanted pornography viewing through research-supported principles. So whether you simply want to help with a problem like unwanted pornography, difficulty responding to emotions, or just want to understand the world of someone struggling with porn a little better, head over to lifeafterpornography.com and get in on the next training. There you'll learn the exact same strategies individuals addicted to pornography used to transform their lives by implementing principles from evidence-based treatment shown effective in research for reducing unwanted pornography viewing. You'll learn the secrets, the myths, the enemies to recovery, and the LAP framework for dealing with unwanted porn viewing that we call WAVE. If that's something that interests you, click the link in the description or just head over to lifeafterpornography.com. I'm Dr. Cameron Staley, see you on the inside.